show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Welcome back to part two of Frozen. Um, Larry, just in case anyone missed part one, how would you describe what happened, what we covered in part one in a few words? Can you even remember? Um, I had a very boozy <laughs> clip and yeah. we talked about ice cubes and ice luges and ice bars and ice wine and ice cider and a bit, a bit of Bonnie Tyler. A bit of Bonnie Tyler, but not a single vanilla ice joke. Um, yeah. So maybe we'll fix that at some point in this episode. Uh, did you... I've got myself a new drink, uh, for one. Because mm-hmm. last time I was on the frozen margarita. Uh, this time I've got a beer. It's actually from Sweden, from Gothenburg. Because I may mention a bit of Sweden later. And I'm like, well, that's that's very cold and icy up in Sweden. And it's called Beerbliotech. the brewery is Beerbliotech and the drink itself is called Here Comes the Sun because Leary after every frost must come a thaw (laughs) she said I think (laughs) Uh, I've got a wine it's a bit tenuous Um, Mm -hmm. it's just the bottle looks like a little ice sculpture Hmm. I know it does yeah hard to portray in a podcast but it does look like an ice sculpture um I did quickly Google it. Uh, it's LYV Rosé, which is delicious. I had some of this last summer. Um, I'm not a big rosé drinker normally, uh, but I was tasked with going to buy some wine for a friend for a barbecue. And they said, just get the palest rosé you can find. It actually looks darker on this Zoom call than it is. It's a very mm-hmm. pale rosé. Um, and I like the bottle and I remember the bottle. And I also like the wine. It's delicious. Uh, and when I read into it, apparently this bottle was um, part of a design competition where people could design a bottle for the company. And this was the winner. Mm. Good choice. Looks mm. very lovely. Yes, it's a very good wine. So uh, last time I kicked off by talking about um, frozen water and frozen alcohol. Mm-hmm. I thought this time I'd talk about the very coldness that is liquid nitrogen. So the culinary use of liquid nitrogen is mentioned back in 1890 in a recipe book entitled Fancy Ices. <laughs> oh, she's fancy. She fancy. Her ices are fancy. <laughs> uh, authored by Mrs. Agnes Marshall, who I imagine is also fancy. Oh, she's fancy. Uh, she is fancy. But it didn't really, like, um, gain popularity in drinks until the 21st century. So a liquid nitrogen cocktail is any mixed drink whose preparation involves the use of um, liquid nitrogen, causing this smoky, bubbling, sort of cauldron effect. Um, now... It might look nice, but it's a bit controversial as a cocktail ingredient because it boils at minus 196 degrees C. Um, So if you've got it liquid, it's below that. Um, When you see it boiling and evaporating, it's still minus 196, which means that if you consume it, it could be lethal. 
because of its low temperature, it's really damaging to body tissue. It causes frostbite. It can cause cryogenic burning on contact. If you ingest it, it leads to severe internal damage, destroys tissue in the mouth and digestive tract. And furthermore, as it evaporates, liquid nitrogen releases a large volume of gas, which means it can burst the stomach if swallowed in a sufficiently large amount. It is not a regulated substance uh, in most countries, and there is almost no control of its use. So, (laughs) if you are going to order a drink that has that kind of smoking, bubbling, liquid nitrogen, cool-looking thing in it, please, 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 wait until it's all, all boiled off first. Wait until it's gone, and then you can drink it. But what I would say is, is it really worth the risk of an exploding frozen stomach just for a bit of a smoke effect? I would say no. <laughs> what do you think? Do it for the gram. <laughs> <laughs> do it for the gram. Yes. Yes. Good point. Didn't think of that. Uh, there is a safer version that you can have. There is a cocktail called liquid nitrogen, which doesn't contain any liquid nitrogen. Insist that your liquid nitrogen contains no liquid nitrogen. It's actually just a very aniseedy, simple cocktail. It's one shot of Sambuca and one shot of Ouzo poured over four ice cubes in an old-fashioned glass. I can see why they gave it that name. Yeah, it's just... like it would burst my stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just strong double aniseed sweet thing over ice. I'm not tempted, but I would prefer that to drinking actual liquid nitrogen. So there you go, That's that's your alternative. Okay. I'm all right, thanks. What are um, you going to lead us into uh, in, in this part two? Well, we haven't actually talked about fr- like frozen drinks yet. Mm. Like actual I mean, I, ha- I had one. I had one last episode. I had a frozen we margarita. Did. We didn't talk about it. We did not. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so machines to make frozen drinks were invented by a guy called Omar Knedlik. In the late 1950s, 1958 to be precise. Mm. Um, It wasn't through a want or need for said device. It was just that he found himself in a predicament. Uh, The soda fountain broke at his restaurant. And so he was forced to put his sodas into a freezer to keep them cool. uh, Which then caused them to become slushy when they were opened. Um, lots of people at the restaurant really enjoyed that slushy drink, uh, which then gave him the idea to create a slushy machine. Hmm. Um, so he did so using um, an aircon unit. <laughs> a bit of innovation, bit of improvisation, and he created his first slushy machine. Uh, and when it became popular, he hired somebody to create a marketing name and logo. Uh, they came up with icy, I-C-E-E, with icicles on the logo. You may mm-hmm. have seen it before. It's the same logo that's used today. Uh, in 1965, he then struck a deal, a licensing deal with 7-Eleven. Uh, they wanted to sell the product, but they agreed on some conditions. One being that they had to use a different product name. They couldn't sell them as ICs. Uh, and they also signed a non-compete clause, so the two brands never went head-to-head. Um, so Icy was still sold at their own places, including this guy's restaurant. Um, but 7-Eleven started selling their own version, which was 
the Slurpee. Mm. Uh, I have definitely so heard of. Definitely heard of the Slurpee. I think we all have the Simpsons. Um, That's the squishy. Name... Is it squishy? Yeah. Oh, I suppose they're not allowed to use Slurpee. They get no, every, everything's fake there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was a chap called Bob Stanford. He was an agency director at 7-Eleven. He came up with the name Slurpee, and it was because of the sound you make when you drink them. Um, despite 7-Eleven creating Slurpee, and as we all know, it's a huge name. They've done very well with it. The IC company have still done very well. Uh, they've got over 75,000 machines across the US, and they sell around 300 million a year. Uh, that's thanks to having them sold in McDonald's, Subway, Walmart, Burger King and a plethora of other restaurants and shops. Um, in 2019, IC first hit the UK. They partnered with Vimpto and they started selling the Vimpto slushies in Cineworld and Showcase Cinemas. I think it's quite interesting that there's like the feeling with a slush pap or like a slurpee in the UK is very much a time and a place, isn't it? I always associate with when I used to have it as a kid. It was always after I'd been swimming, or they were always like in a gymnasium or a leisure centre, or <laughs> they were in like random places like that. And now it does seem to be more cinemas, whereas in the US it's more normal to see them alongside Coke, Sprite, Fanta, and all the usual places. It's just a a regular soft drink out there whereas here it's more of a not even a treat I, I guess adults don't drink it all that much um but i did mention slush puppy that's the kind of brand that we recognize more in, mm. in the uk not forgotten them uh, so slush puppy was created in 1970 so quite a bit later than uh, these slushy machines that i've been talking about uh they grew to 25 million dollar annual sales and were sold to Schweppes for 16.6 million in the year 2000 and they were then sold or sorry acquired by icy in 2006 so it kind of came full circle so when we think of icy it's essentially slush puppies here in mm -hmm. the uk you see lots of them in um view and audience cinemas as well now as things like um tango iced ice blast I yeah. was in an audience cinema yesterday and they had like Fanta versions. So again, you only really see them in cinemas in the UK, which I find odd. <laughs> did you ever, sorry if I'm jumping the gun on this, but did you ever have like a home version? Uh, funnily enough, as a kid, I always wanted the snow cone maker, the mm -hmm. snowman one. Uh, yeah. We never did have one, but <laughs> for Christmas two years ago, my husband bought me a, a home slush puppy machine for the nostalgia. <laughs> and it's really hard to get it right. <laughs> See, this is what I was going to say. I, I did have one as a child in the late 80s. I think it was like called Frosty the Snowman or something. And you put mm -hmm. the ice like in his head and the slush would come out of his belly. Um, which, you know, in itself was a little bit sinister. But... The advert made it look so easy, but the reality was you were trying to grate ice with plastic. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not not as easy as it looked. And uh, the um, the syrups that it came with were absolutely horrendous. Um, oh, no. At that young age, it didn't really occur to me that I could have just put anything I wanted in. Like gin. Um, mm -hmm. 
But yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of effort for a questionable reward. That's what I remember. This is how I feel about the home slash puppy maker we've got. And I wouldn't even call it a love-hate relationship. I've got a hate relationship with it. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> that you, you have to spend so much time doing it. Because um, the, way, the way you do it, you've got the syrups, you've got the water, but you've also got a compartment where you've got to add salt. Because mm-hmm. that obviously creates the slushiness and brings the temperature to a certain level. But you've got to do that bit by bit. You have to stand there. It takes something like 30, 40 minutes. And you have yep. to stand there and like add the salt and wait for it. And if it gets to a certain point, you have to like do things. It's You feel like you're doing a bloody science experiment when you all you want is just a slush puppy. Um, I, I think what should really bring home how much you dislike this piece of equipment is the fact that uh, you have it. And yet in the first part of this frozen episode... Instead of making a slushy, all you did was pour gin into a half-eaten calippo. Well, <laughs> that was your I'm preference. Yet, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm yet to make a successful one. I, I always get the consistency right, um, but it's it's just really odd because there's the outer compartment where the water and the syrup and the the magic happens, and then it's the metal bit on the inside where there's a funnel that you directly put the salt and stuff and the ice to keep them separate. I've tried taking the machine apart and doing all kinds of things because I thought maybe I've not put this together again. But for some reason, every single time I do it, my slush puppies just taste like salt. (laughs) And I just do not understand why, because I'm not pouring any salt into the mix. There's no salt going accidentally out of the funnel into the water. I've been meticulous about it. And I just, I, I don't understand how or why my slush puppies are salty. It's, I... I'm just, I hate it. I hate it. I've tried so many times and it takes so long every time. And every time I'm convinced I've done it, I was like, I've done this to the book. I've watched stuff on YouTube. Nope. Salty. That was a really long round. (laughs) (laughs) And so our glasses ever and salty. Um, I can talk about booze now because I don't want to talk about slush puppies anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah. Frozen alcoholic drinks. Yes, so please. blended drinks, um, like the frozen daiquiri, are thought to have originated in Cuba around the time of Prohibition. Um, that's because it was one of the closest places you could go and drink legally. Uh, so one of those Americans was Ernest Hemingway. He was known to drink a fair share of frozen daiquiris in the Havana bar El Floridita. Uh, it's said that he would stay at a hotel just down the street um, around the 1930s. Uh, he became a huge fan of the drink, and in a letter he wrote to his son in 1939, he says, I drank a few highly frozen daiquiris just to see their effect, what they would do. It was moder- moderately terrific and made me a friend of all mankind. I think we talk about Hemingway at least twice a year. He always pops up in these (laughs) stories. He's so (laughs) instrumental. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he he used to frequent uh, a Floridita and drink many, many uh, frozen daiquiris. Um, There are lots of letters and lots of references and stories about him. Apparently there's one he claims he watched his friend drink 17 frozen daiquiris and didn't appear overly drunk and had no hangover. Um, and sure. he, they weren't they weren't drinking weak ones either. Apparently his typical order was a 
double daiquiri without any sugar. So you like them quite intense. Um, with a pina colada emerging from Puerto Rico in the 50s, blended drinks really enjoyed a heyday in the 50s and 60s, up until store-bought mixers emerged. Uh, in the early 70s, you could buy those horrible syrups that we've talked about with the mm. uh, homemade makers. Um, and unfortunately, blended drinks then started becoming synonymous with just poor quality. As we've actually talked about in the Beaujolais episode, where Was Beaujolais it? wine... Um, oh, so I thought with... you were going to say the Tiki episode. Because we talked well, fun... about... We talked about the evolution into premixes in the tiki episode and the daiquiri. Funnily enough, in the t- in, in my research for this, um, the beachcomber guy Don Beachcomber, he mm. came, he came, he popped up um, because when the whole blended drinks phenomenon kicked off and they started using blended machines to do that, his uh, bar was one. The beachcomber was one of the first places. Mm. Uh, but no, Beaujolais. Day, I was thinking of own um, Beaujolais wine started when it started to be celebrated in parties on mass uh bars would just get in any old wine and serve it as oh, right, yeah. and it was crap yeah. <laughs> and so it started getting uh, a bit of a reputation for being poor quality um so around about the same time of all of this um a guy called mariano martinez created what is thought to be the world's first alcohol slushy machine uh, he did this by modifying an old soft serve ice cream machine, which he then used to make frozen margaritas. I think Margaret Thatcher would be outraged. <laughs> he um, so he was twenty six years old and he owned a restaurant in Dallas, and he found himself uh, in a bit of a pickle because people were really slamming his restaurant because frozen margaritas at the time, as I'd mentioned, were having a heyday. Everyone was drinking them. And they'd become a staple in Texas because of the year-round heat. People really enjoyed drinking them. Demand was so high, they were really struggling to just make them quick enough. Everyone was ordering them. They tried to amend the recipes and how they made them to try and make them faster. But they were either being told that they weren't cold enough or they didn't taste right. So he was getting pretty stressed and getting a lot of bad reviews because his frozen margaritas were... Too slow, too cold, not cold enough, or didn't taste quite right. So he wanted to innovate and create something. He had a vision when he was grabbing a coffee from 7-Eleven. Do you see where this is going? Yes. Yes. So he saw the Slurpee machine and thought, hmm, I wonder. He contacted them, but they wouldn't sell him their product because they said alcohol's unattainably low freezing point would negate the purpose of the device. So he had to do his own thing, improvised, got the soft serve ice cream machine. He found a chemist who could help him adapt the um, margarita recipe to suit. And the rest is history. The innovation went like a dream. And he opened five more restaurants as a result. Um, Wow. And now we see them everywhere. Nailed it. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. I like that um, both the kind of slushy machines and the frozen margarita machines were born out of a problem, essentially, rather than a kind of somebody trying to make money. It was more of a, Mm -hmm. I need something, and it's pure innovation like that. Nice. Incidentally, do you know um, 
Do you know why the or when and why the first blender was created? No. So it was in well, it was sort of designed in 1919, but it was it was properly created in 1922. The first patented drinks mixer is by a Polish American uh, guy called Stephen Poplavsky. And um, he was working for Arnold Electric Company. And mm-hmm. they had asked him to make it specifically for Horlicks malted milkshakes. Oh. So the first drinks, the first blender, the first drinks mixer was uh, for Horlicks in 1922. And then obviously all your stories followed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ice, ice got involved. Um, I thought that we should probably pay attention to the Arctic and the Antarctic for uh, the rest of this part. You're going to get all Greta on me. Mm, No, not too much. I don't think so. I've tried tried not to. Um, I'll tell you what, just to be um, the opposite side, uh, I'm going to start with the phrase, uh, sell ice or sell refrigerators to Eskimos. Mm. You heard that phrase? I have. As in meaning you're so good at marketing, you can sell things people don't need to them. Yeah, that's, um, that's what I do for a living. It is indeed. I mean, not literally that, obviously, but <laughs> metaphorically. Uh, so <laughs> um, it seems to have come from early 20th century US. I've um, found a few articles that use varieties of this phrase, either ice or refrigerators and kind of in different ways. But it all seems to come around the same time, which is early 20th century. Uh, The example I will pick out is this piece of advice, because I think you will like it specifically. Uh, This is from... Don't eat yellow snow. Mm -hmm. Don't Don't eat yellow yellow snow? Yeah, no, it's not that. But also, that is good advice and you should not. Um, This is from How to Be Beautiful by She's a Bear. Uh, published in, <laughs> just realised what that sounds like. I probably haven't <laughs> pronounced her name. <laughs> probably. That's what it looks like it's supposed to be pronounced. S H E Z A B A E R. I love it. How to look beautiful. She's I think she, I th- she's a bear. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, it was published in 1912, so I think she's probably dead now. It's okay. We can laugh at her name. Um, in the Chicago Examiner. Um, so here it is. Recommendation for the complexion. There are many remedies designed to improve the complexion. Red cheeks are always desirable, but natural red cheeks among married women are about as common as refrigerators among the blonde Eskimos. Seven or eight cocktails will, however, generally bring a noticeable flush to the cheeks. This flush is not permanent, however, and if the remedy is taken too frequently, the f- flush shifts to the nose where it does become permanent. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. I've, al- I've always had a bit of a red nose. Not, <laughs> well, not, like, nah, even we as know. a child. We know why. <laughs> <laughs> we know why. So there you go. Advice uh, on how to be beautiful from 1912. So that, that phrase popped up there and it seemed to pop up a lot around the area of the US around that time. Um, in case you are wondering, the term Eskimo, whether it's okay or it's not okay, um, people in many parts of the Arctic do consider Eskimo a derogatory term because it was widely used by racist non-native colonizers. Um, many people also thought that it meant eater of raw meat, 
which gives connotations of barbarism, violence. Uh, the, the word's exact et- etymology actually isn't clear. Uh, mid-century anthropologists think that the word might have come from the Latin word um, excommunicate, meaning the excommunicated ones, because the native people of the Canadian Arctic were not Christian. Um, but there's a more recent theory, which I think sounds a lot more plausible to me uh, than the Latin nonsense, which is that, um, and this is actually coming from the Alaska Native Language Centre at the University of Alaska and Fairbanks. So they think that it comes from the French word, which sounds very similar, Eskimo, but E-S-Q-I-M-A-U-X, which means uh, one who nets snowshoes. So netting snowshoes is obviously the way that Arctic people uh, build winter footwear by tightly weaving or netting sinew from caribou and other animals across a wooden frame. Um, so it's probably actually that the word referred just referred to their footwear from the French observations of going there. But obviously it's still not their word and also that sort of etymological knowledge as opposed to the old one about it being um, eaters of raw meat, which is what I believed when I was young. I, I thought it meant that. Um, it, it's come kind of too late to be rehabilitated as a word, really. So the word racist history means that most people in Canada and Greenland still prefer other terms. The most widespread term that's used is Inuit, which simply mm-hmm. means people. Um, yeah. And if it's a singular person, it's Inuk. So Inuk, singular person, Inuit, people. There is actually somebody that I follow on social media who's Inuit, and she posts loads of really helpful videos about the culture and more recently she's been posting about um throat singing that they do which is incredible if you've not seen it Google well it. i have because i'm a fan of bjork and it features yeah, of course often in her work mm, it's great. um so just to finish that off like every, not everyone's necessarily convinced um you know, on uh, when or when it's not okay to use Eskimo. Many native Alaskans actually do still refer to themselves as Eskimos. And that's in part because the word Inuit isn't part of the Yupik languages of Alaska and Siberia. So although it's kind of the predominant one and the one that's seen as least offensive, some people don't have that word in their language, so they will still use it. So, you know, we should use Inuit. But we should not tell Eskimo, self-identified Eskimos, they can't call themselves Eskimos. <laughs> yeah. We're not allowed um, to use the E word, guys. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Um, a common Inuit drink is Labrador tea. Uh, that's that's what I discovered when I was looking for the most common one. Uh, it's a common name for three closely related plant species in the rhododendron genus, um, as well as a herbal tea made from their leaves. So you've got Northern Labrador tea, Bog Labrador tea, and Western Labrador tea, or Trappist tea as it's otherwise known. The, um, the Pomo, the Cachea, and the Trelowo and Yuruk of Northern California will boil the leaves of the Western Labrador tea uh, to make medicinal herb tea to help with coughs and colds. And then botanical extracts from the leaves are used to create skincare products uh, by companies in Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, indeed. Um, others will use Labrador tea to spice their meat by boiling the leaves and branches as well in water and then soak the meat in the decoction. Um, during the 18th century as well, German brewers were using it in their beer to make it more intoxicating, they thought. 
but it then became forbidden because it led to increased aggression. Um, this put me in mind of the kind of stories that are best exemplified by absinthe, where people are like, there's something in it that makes you behave in a weird way, and it turned out that something was actually alcohol. Um, so I was yeah. So I was wondering, oh, is it actually toxic? Uh, it turns out that it that it is. <laughs> so despite everyone drinking this Labrador tea, there is no sufficient data that demonstrates that it's safe to consume because the toxicity varies across species and localities as well. So if you have too much of it, it can lead to diarrhea and vomiting and dizziness. Uh, large doses can lead to cramps, convulsions, paralysis, and even, in a few rare cases, death. So, what I initially thought was an innocuous herbal drink of the Inuit people, it turns out became an intoxicating beer and is actually highly toxic, so <laughs> I don't know where to conclude on that one. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to move us over to Svalbard. Um, and a brewery there, Svalbardi which is the world's northernmost bottled water. It's kind of your industry. Have you heard of them? Say it again. Svalbardi. Svalbardi. I don't think so. Okay, so they are 78 degrees north. They have been recognised by the Fine Water Society as the world's best-tasting super low-mineral water. Um, <laughs> Svalbard as well, if you're not familiar, it really is kind of one of Europe's last true wildernesses. It's this archipelago located between 74 degrees and 81 degrees north latitude, uh, 1,000 kilometres from the North Pole. 60% uh, of the archipelago is covered in glaciers, and it's populated by 3,000 polar bears, mm. <laughs> uh, as well as obviously lots of marine animals, whales, walruses, dolphins, etc. It also houses the Global Seed Bank, have you heard of that yes i have yeah so they are working to protect the world's food supplies biodiversity from climate change for future generations so essentially they've got a copy of every kind of uh, every living flora in the world or at least that's their aim and they keep it there because if there are power cuts and global disasters and all the rest of it the seeds will survive in the cold temperatures indefinitely um, so, this bottled water company, uh, they say, I'm going to run through um, some stats, which uh, you may make a face at, but um, our listeners can just imagine. So, they're <laughs> saying that they save 100 kilograms of the North Pole ice cap for every bottle sold. Um, and then they also use their, their profits and their resources to educate the world on the precarious state of the Arctic and Svalbard. Um, the natural year yearly balance of ice, they say, there is being thrown off by global warming. The roughly 5 billion cubic metres of icebergs that naturally carve off the glaciers that cover 60% of Svalbard every year are normally replenished through winter snow. But because of climate change, they're now losing more ice than can be replaced. The permafrost is melting and the seas are not freezing as much, which also threatens polar, bear and other, uh, polar bears and other wildlife. So they use only icebergs that would otherwise melt into the ocean causing sea level rises that are not large enough for polar bears so that's what they're saying they make their bottled water from these glaciers but only when they're already falling into the sea and are not going to be useful for polar bears mm -hmm. um, they're certified carbon neutral by supporting improved water infrastructure in uganda and malawi and wind farms in western china 
to offset their emissions. And they use a wooden cap in their bottles, um, which they say is meant to kind of represent the, um, uh, like the, uh, not, not the shipwreck, Flotsam and Jetsam type affair. I've explained <laughs> the difference between Flotsam and Jetsam before and I couldn't remember which was which, so I didn't want to say it. Anyway, that. Uh, salvage, wooden salvage in the ocean. Although it's actually created in Spain. <laughs> it's not actually salvage. But it does come from sustainable forests and their, their glass bottles recycled. Um, the thing that I really wanted to point out there about their very expensive looking bottles is the crazy security they have. So um, Svalbardi incorporates this security system using a proof tag to ensure that the bottle is authentic and hasn't been tampered with. Uh, it's normally only used for fine wines and um, it generates a, a bubble pattern that's unique to each bottle with a serial number and a tamper-proof metallic seal um, and any attempt to remove it will reveal the checker pattern um, or a break and you can check the authenticity of your bottle by scanning the QR code on the bottle entering the serial number and you will be shown the series of bubble patterns in order to identify yours to make sure that it hasn't wow. been tampered with in any way yeah that's insane. That's some serious work for a glass of water. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I mean, it does look pretty. Uh, it, so in the same location uh, of Longyearbyen, which is where we are in Svalbard, you will find Svalbard Brewery, which opened in 2015. Uh, unfortunately... They only deliver in Norway, which is why I'm drinking uh, one from Gothenburg rather than Longyearbyen. Um, mm. And only during the summer as well. <laughs> only Norway, only during the summer. They do have some tours uh, and they're open on Fridays if you want to pop along and visit. Do you want to whack out the spreadsheet? Yeah, I do. Yeah, let's go to Svalbard. I think it'd be great. Um a distinctive fact for all their Spitsbergen beer that they produce is that 16% of the top quality water comes from the 2,000-year-old glacier Bogabrain. Um, so they are another user of the local glaciers for their for their water, but this time it's turned into beer. Mm. Actually, brewing was illegal in this town um, before the founder of the Svalbard Brewery got involved. And he was like, but I want to make some booze here. And they said, oh, it's illegal. They changed their minds. It was a coal miner and pilot called Robert Johansson. Uh, Why is it illegal? And set it up. Um, I mean, I'm not really sure on the reasons, but actually I'm going to talk about Greenland in a bit as well. And it was the same situation there. I suspect it's probably something to do with the isolation of the towns and the problems it can potentially cause in small communities. Um I've certainly seen a few kind of Icelandic crime dramas that seem to <laughs> play this theory out. Um, so, as I said, yeah, Greenland. So, ice, iceberg water being used seems to have been pioneered in Greenland. So, Greenland Brewhouse was Greenland's first brewery, and it was located in Narsak in southern Greenland, founded in December 2004. So they collected the meltwater from the icebergs and transported it to the brewery by local fishermen on their little fishing boats. Um, and so they really pioneered the ice brew, it seems, in the early 2000s. Uh, brewed from the 2,000-year-old Arctic ice harvested from the glaciers. But, alas, that microbrewery only lasted four years. It filed for bankruptcy Aww. in October 2008. 
Um, and yeah, alcohol had been restricted in Greenland, but only up to 1954. So I think it's just something common to sort of the Arctic reasons that they uh, prohibited it for quite a long time. I remember it being the same in Iceland as well, actually. It was relatively recent that Iceland repealed it too. Um, however, brewing has returned to Greenland in the form of a brewery called Kayak. Um, kayak, named after the the boats, but spelled Q-A-J-A-Q, which might be a handy Scrabble word for some of you out there. Um so it's close to the Greenland ice cap where they harvest the icebergs drifting past the brewery, um, which can be up to 4,000 years old. And then they get their local ingredients, although I think they have to, you know, import some malts and hops and stuff. Um, and they mostly make lagers there as well. Yes, so Kayak Brewery in Greenland does now exist. I'm not sure how they are with exporting yet, but should we happen to be in Greenland? Yep. Spreadsheet, where are you? <laughs> um, let's flip poles. Uh, and go to Antarctica. I've got to check with Chris. But... <laughs> See if he's okay with it. We are going south. Uh, so Antarctica <laughs> is the highest, driest, windiest, emptiest, coldest place on Earth. We do not uh, need to put this on the spreadsheet. You, have you been to Swansea? <laughs> it is not the driest <laughs> <laughs> true mm. okay so there there are no breweries let's get that out of the way there are no breweries oh, in antarctica it would be no. a bit of a mission so any I'm put it on the spreadsheet in red just... <laughs> does that mean definitely don't go there no. Hard yeah, pass. just in case at some point somebody convinces us we should go there and right. we can look at the spreadsheet and go, actually, no, it's on the shit list. Yeah, yeah. No. Just in case we ever feel like stealing a penguin one day and we think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so any any booze, any beer has to travel to Antarctica. There are a dozen or so countries that have research stations throughout the continent and so they have to bring their booze from home, uh, traditionally. However... In 2022, this very year, the rules changed. So there is some new guidance from the Australian Antarctic Division. Remember, this is Australia we're talking about. Um, they say, starting next summer, this, this is obviously last year, AAD staff will be limited to just 10 standard drinks a week, an amount which the division says brings their policy in line with current Australian government health guidelines. The policy also dictates the number of alcoholic drinks that researchers can take to Antarctica, seven cans of beer per week, 1.5 bottles of wine or champagne per week, and one half bottle of spirits per week. And those are reportedly about half of the current limit. And home brewing has also been banned. So on the one hand, if I told you they'd crack down, they'd put rules, and you can only have half as much as they had been having, you'd be like, oh, that's harsh. But I actually think that what they've laid out is not an unreasonable amount of alcohol <laughs> considering yeah, you're meant to be lot. doing scientific research in antarctica yeah <laughs> considering it's because when you were reading it I, in my head i was thinking is this and or or but you were saying and so you can bring all of those it's not like you, you can take beer wine etc etc you can take one of each right i mean that's what i'm understanding from the guidelines yeah. unless they haven't understood how <laughs> commas work um, yeah. And in fact, you have to choose one of those. 
because we would rock up with all of those. And yeah, say, no, no, I, would, no. <laughs> I would max all of that out every week, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of um, glad homebrewing is banned because we all know how that goes for me. So. Yeah, I, I think it would be a little bit too difficult there. So yeah, they, they are cracking down on it. They're saying, um, you know, it's again, because it's so isolated and because it's a workplace, they want to make sure that people feel safe, which is understandable, I think. If you're going to be working with strangers, you don't necessarily want them getting too squiffy. Um, there is a beer called Antarctica, which is okay. actually very old and is not Antarctic. Um, so Brazil's largest brewer, Ambev, was formed in 1999 as a merger of their two biggest brands that come before, which were Brahma and Antarctica. Um, and then in 2004, Ambev merged with Belgium's Interbrew, which is Stella Artois, Beck, Stara Pramen, and lots of others. And they formed the world's largest brewer, which is now known as InBev. And in 2016, InBev merged with the American company Anheuser-Busch to form Anheuser-Busch InBev, which is now a ridiculously enormous company. <laughs> but um, so Antarctica remains part of that but it was founded on its own in 1885 um, and then Brahma followed shortly after that and they were just like these two big rivals in Brazilian beer making um, and who as I say then merged and focused instead of uh, pushing each other to new exciting places in the craft industry instead focused on mass production and cutting costs uh, which is another way of saying that they're all a bit shit really um another another shit drink with the antarctica name is guarana antarctica which is a guarana flavored soft drink originating again in brazil uh, created in 1921 um it is um almost entirely sugar and additives water sugar and additives it's got guarana extract in it sure but if you look at the ingredients, you'd be like, oh, hard pass. Um, I feel like um, Antarctica needs a brand manager to clamp down on this shit. Yeah, Antarctica was re- like, the Arctic has really upped its game in the past sort of 10 years. They are on it. Antarctica, not at all, is what I've learned. <laughs> um, they did have some weird ads, though, Garana Antarctica. Um, they did this commercial in 2006 featuring Diego Maradona, the Argentinian football player. <laughs> who found himself wearing the yellow jersey of the Brazilian team and singing the Brazilian national anthem before waking up and saying, oh, that was a nightmare because he had had too much guarana the day before. What? Yep. So he had a fever dream because he ate, he drank too much guarana and ended up on the wrong football team. And you're like, okay. Um, And they were trying, they were trying to use that to sell guarana. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I mean, <laughs> this is your area, not mine. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they also did a commercial that showed um, Garana berry plantations in the in the Amazon, while narrator kind of explained the production process, introduced the audience to the Garana tree, and at the end of that spot, the narrator turns to the audience and says, "Now ask Coca Cola to show you the Coca tree." So it was meant to be this attack on coca-cola for how they initially put cocaine in it Mm -hmm. um 
In response, uh, Coca-Cola aired a commercial for its own guarana-based drink called Kuat. Um, and they used the former world number one tennis player Gustavo Curtin asking a street vendor for a guarana to which the vendor threw him a can of guarana Antarctica and Curtin throws it back to the vendor um, and says, do it the right way, which prompts the vendor to toss him a can of Coca-Cola's Kuat. God, this is so petty. It's it's petty and it's trash for a terrible yeah. drink. <laughs> Imagine how much money was spent on this guff. <laughs> so there you go. You can buy Garana Antarctica in this country. Like you can get it in supermarkets yeah, but and stuff. I don't but, want to. But but don't is my message. Um <laughs> I feel like I need to end on something that's a little bit more positive towards Antarctica. Okay. So this is the only thing I could find. Um, <laughs> this is <laughs> Dogfish Brewery. Um, Sam Calagione of Dogfish, um, he's the head, head uh, of the craft brewed ales. This is based in Delaware, by the way, not Antarctica. Delaware in the US. He got the idea to brew a beer with ingredients from all seven continents. Um, so I think kind of, you know, the expectation might be, um, maybe you go for some plankton or some penguins or something from, no, he went for (laughs) melted ice, obviously from, from Antarctica. Um, and they called it Pangea, uh, which I, he got the idea when he was watching like a, a cartoon with his son about dinosaurs. So obviously they were all one great big landmass there called Pangaea rather than the separate continents. Mm-hmm. So bringing all these ingredients together, we called it Pangaea. Um, he says, we work with a US military research station on Antarctica. They sent us a couple of five gallon buckets of Antarctic water uh, and each 750 ml bottle of Pangaea is pretty much guaranteed to have at least a few molecules of Antarctic water. Oh God, a few. It's promising, isn't it? Um, <sighs> the... So he says it's a, a spicy ale. Um, and in addition to the Antarctic water, we've got crystallized ginger from Australia, basmati rice from Asia, muscovado sugar from Africa, quinoa from South America, European yeast, and North American maize. And that's what's this, in it. This it sounds quite nice. A new thing. It can't be a new thing. Tell me this isn't like the last few years. Yeah. Because it goes against everything that the whole world is trying to stop doing, which is shipping ingredients around the globe unnecessarily. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, it's absolutely the opposite of local, but this was like the best story I could find <laughs> for Antarctica. But this story is maybe more angry than all of them. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> well, I, well, I've messed that up, haven't I? <laughs> do you want to end on any other note for Frozen? Because I'm all out of ideas. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm just mad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So uh, our glasses have run dry and our assets are frozen, uh, which means it's time to retreat before things get too slushy. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.